it turns out the environment, generally we underappreciate the impact of the environment. And if we can change the environment a little bit, then all these people who yesterday weren't speaking up, tomorrow they're going to be speaking up because we made it safer for them to speak up. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger for optimising business performance. Scaling up organisations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesise what I've learned along the way to help you build a higher quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode. We do cracking show notes. They're at dominicmonkhouse.com. Hello, today I'm talking to David Marquet, the author of Turn the Ship Around. It's his story of how after 12 months of preparing to take command of a nuclear submarine in the U.S. Navy, they gave him a different ship. So we chatted at the beginning about what that means, and he said it's a bit like you and I being blindfolded in our own house, and they say, okay, find the fuse box, now turn off the fuse for the dishwasher, and being able to do that just straight away. He said that's the level of knowledge he has of the submarine, and then he ends up in a completely different ship. So... He starts off by giving commands and people people are saying, yes, sir. And then they can't execute the command because he doesn't know the ship. So he has to park his ego and he has to put behind him all of the things that got him where he was, which was being the smartest guy in the room, making all the decisions, telling people what to do. And he comes up with a plan to get the ship to manage itself without him so that he can do something very different, which is to do pattern matching and he transforms. The Santa Fe had been previously the laughing stock of the Navy. It'd been bottom of all the, all the charts. It made the headlines all the time because they kept making mistakes. Three years later, it was the number one ship in the Navy, and they promoted him out of there to run the inspectorate of submarines and training. So absolutely fantastic conversation. And what I particularly like about the conversation with David today is that there are some things he talks about that are actionable tomorrow or even today, including some things that we can do as leaders to practice in our private lives, what we would want to see at work. So absolutely fantastic conversation with David. I thought it was great. We had a good laugh. I'm sure you'll enjoy it as well. Hey guys, I'm David Marquet. I'm the author of Turn the Ship Around. I used to be a control freak. Well, actually I'm still wired to be a control freak but I'm trying to get over it. I had a great experience as a submarine commander, nuclear-powered submarine. Now, if you're a control freak, this is a perfect place to go. Everyone is very close. It's a tight-knit group. They can't get away. You can run around. You think, oh, I'm going to run around and control everything. Very satisfying. And uh, my story is that, that that whole thing got upended, and I wrote about it and turned the ship around. Really transformed the way I thought about leadership, what it is, what do leaders do, what's the role of leadership and that kind of thing. So I'm super jazzed to be with you guys this morning. David, that's fantastic. Thank you for coming on. When you went on to the submarine, and was that, that the, the submarine you write back in the book, is that your first, was your first command? Yeah, it's my first command, first submarine command. Yeah. So I was, 
I was working my way up through the Navy and I was keep kept getting promoted because I was so good at telling people what to do. Okay. And had you been in submarines before this? Yeah, yeah. I was a submariner. I was a career... Um, submariner. So to speak, career sub- Yeah, a career submariner. And I've been... Uh, submarines have four tiers of hierarchy for the officers. So I'd gone in first level, made it through the wickets, went to the next levels, department head, made it to the next level, which is second in command. And then now I was selected to be a submarine a captain, which I was super jazzed about now. This was my dream job. This is what I wanted. This is why I joined the Navy. And for 12 months, we had this long school. This, uh, you guys have Perisher, which we have a part of our schools like the Perisher, where you go to sea and you shoot torpedoes and it's very dynamic. But we also have a lot of classroom stuff. You learn about your submarine. You learn every single detail. And imagine you could put a blindfold on and go to the find your breaker box in your house and if I said, turn the breakers off for the kitchen, you could do that blindfolded. That's the kind of knowledge that you have. Specific, detailed, intimate knowledge. Why? Because as the captain, you wouldn't ever do that, but you need to be able to tell people to do that. Anyway, I'd flown to Hawaii uh, where the ship was stationed, and I was two weeks away and I got a phone call and the Navy, my boss told me, hey, change of plans. You're going to go to the Santa Fe instead. And I was like, no, not the Santa Fe. The problem was the Santa Fe was the worst performing submarine in the fleet. It had the worst morale. The worst. She was just, we would laugh. And during that 12 months of school, we'd get these messages. Santa Fe screwed up another thing. And we'd sort of like, oh, those knuckleheads. And it would be, we were supposed to learn from it, but mostly we just ridiculed them. And the captain there quit a year early. So they had submarino captain. So I said, well, we can't do that. Marque, you're in Hawaii, Santa Fe's in Hawaii. You're Marque, Santa Fe. Now, those two issues, bad morale, bad performance, I'd I with, dealt with before. And the way I'd gotten out of them was always I'd go in, look around, be the smart guy in the room, say, no, no, don't do that. Do this. Do it this way. Stop doing it like that. No, here's here, guys, here's what we need to do, blah, blah, blah. But the problem was the Santa Fe was a different kind of ship than the one I was trained for. It was one of the newest ships in the fleet. And so everything on the submarine was was different. And I kind of go down. I'm like, well, shit, I'm the captain. So I got to tell people what to do. And they're expecting it. So I'm telling people what to do. And it immediately fell apart because they gave an order that couldn't happen. (laughs) I said, uh, which was really embarrassing. But the, the key was I just actually suggested it. I said, hey, why don't we shift into second gear? But it was this this motor only had one gear. It was like, you know, a gear shift on your car, but you only had one gear. And then the sailor was, and the officer ordered it, and the sailor was like looking over his shoulder like we're a bunch of idiots. And it's like, and I'm like, what? And he says, Captain, there's only one gear on the Santa Fe, not like your old submarine. And I was I was deeply embarrassed and I kind of put my head down. And then I realized, well, I didn't give the order. This officer did. And I, so I looked at him and I said, hey, Bill, what did you know about this? And he gives me this really annoying grin. And he says, yes, sir, I did. I was like, well, why did you order it? Because you told me. And this is, the, this is the problem. When you think your job as a leader is to make decisions and you make a bad decision, then you think that the solution is to make better decisions. This is not the solution. The solution is to get out of the decision-making business. 
What you want is the team to make decisions and you to evaluate them. And you want to separate decision maker from decision evaluator. And this, this gets a whole host of amazingly powerful things. Uh, so for, first of all, they have to think. They can't just walk around and tell me what to do. And so thinking is the currency of the modern organization. And so my problem was we had a paucity of thinking. So you get everyone to think. Telling people what to do is just, you might as well just hand them a ticket. No thinking necessary today. I'll just tell you what to do. And so when they come to me and they say, here's what we intend to do. That was the secret word that we used. Number two is if you're not the one who makes the decision, you can more dispassionately look at the decision. And once, as soon as you make a decision, you've attached some portion of your ego, and some people are better than others, but still there's going to be some portion of your ego is attached to that decision. And then when it becomes, there's evidence that the decision is not so good, you double down, we defend it. We, it's very hard for, for someone who made the decision to then walk away from, from the decision. But it's easy if it's some if it's somebody else. So it gives you a whole host of benefits. So before we go there, though, what had you done to your commanding officer that he decided that you were going to take the Santa Fe? Was it just that you were in Hawaii or you'd, uh, you'd kicked his dog too often or something? Well, it, the, the way it turned out was um, when I went through the, the U.S. Navy's version of Perisher, the officer who was running it, uh, when when, the, when that course ended, I went to take over the submarine I was scheduled to take over, and he went to, to the squadron command that Santa Fe was part of. So he was the squadron commander. So he had just spent a long time with me and it was, had intimately observed me as an officer. And I asked him that exact question. I said, what did I do to deserve this? And he said, it's not punishment. He, he, what he said was interesting. He said, I was the most curious guy in the class. And he said, I know curiosity is going to be a very powerful thing for you. Now, the thing, the irony of it is I actually didn't feel like the most curious guy <laughs> in the class. But I, I love to learn. And I know you you have a lot of lifelong learners on your show, which is really important to have a satisfying and interesting life, I think. But so for me, I would just I was kind of like. I just love being a student. You have no responsibility. It, it looks hard to make a big dramatic thing of it, but it's all just you. And so I just love that environment. And he said, I, I know that curiosity is going to be really important. I'm not sure how, I'm not sure how it's going to play out, but he was exactly right. So actually he was playing the deck of cards that had been dealt him. And he's thinking of all the people I know intimately in my new squadron, I'll stick David in there. He's going to have the biggest impact. Well, the, 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 the plan was you had to take an officer who just finished this course, albeit for a different submarine. Also, you, if he puts you in the Santa Fe, you can't make it worse. Well, that's the <laughs> secret of taking over a totally broken organism. I would always, any number divided by zero is going to be big. <laughs> so, uh, so we started this. Yeah, so it was amazing. We started this journey, and I just told my officers. I we had this sort of moment, and I said, "Look, guys, we're we're in a bad way. I'm trained to tell you what to do. You're trained to do it. I don't know the ship. You do. We're gonna die." <laughs> and I said, "How about I never? How about I never give an order? Be because again, my mind went to this place. I don't know the submarine. If I had known it, like I'd known what, like I was supposed to, I would never have gotten to this 
made this leap. And I would say, oh, I just, that was the one thing out of a million I didn't know. I'll do better. But it's like, we have to create a structure where I'm going to focus on building a decision-making factory. You guys are going to make consistently quality, amazing decisions. You're going to own them. You're going to feel a sense of ownership and it's going to be amazing. And the way we're going to do that is you're going to signal it by saying the word intent. I intend to submerge the ship. I intend to load a torpedo. And that triggers thinking. But the other thing is the onus, the the bias for action is amazing. Because what it means is most organizations are permission-based in organization. I would like permission to change the marketing plan. I'd like permission to add this feature. I'd like permission to give this client a discount. And then if the boss is too busy or we didn't get on their schedule, didn't respond to the email, what happens? Nothing. Nothing. Exactly. Nothing is the default state. When you go to intent, action is the default state. This has a huge, huge impact. Because if if nobody was, when you say, I, I intend to launch a torpedo, if nobody says no, you carry on and launch the torpedo? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Unfortunately, you chose <laughs> one example. Which I okay, right. So, so if, I, if you send your boss an email, hey, I intend, uh, I'm going to be meeting with this client tomorrow. I'm, I'm, I intend they're, they're in a new geographic area. I intend to offer them this discount. And you don't respond. What happens? It's no problem. They go, they offer them the discount. It's their plan. But, but the, I, I, the only thing I said I will order is the launch of a weapon uh, because there's a morality involved in that. And that wasn't something that I felt I could uh, operate by fiat in for that one thing. But all the other steps, loading the torpedo, turning it on, aligning the gyros, flooding the torpedo tube, pressurizing with sea pressure, opening the – all the, there's a whole bunch of steps, right? All those steps, they would say, I, opening the outer door and, and – Lining the lining the gyro, selecting target, to, and then they would say, oh, "We're ready to shoot." I would order the shoot. So I, I guess you started that at the top with your with your officers, and did that that went all the way down through the organization. So all the time, people are saying out loud what they're about to do, what they're what they're intending to do out loud, and so not just the officer, but the peers could say, oh, "Don't do that." Right, Dom. That's key. That is exactly key. What I see, a big mistake I see organizations do is they say, oh, I want empowerment. So you just do it. There, there's several problems with this. For problem number one, it's actually you don't get as risk embracing behavior as you do when people say, this is what I intend to do. Because if you say, hey, hey, guys, this is what I intend to do. You can really put it out there. You can be kind of on the edge because you know you're going to get feedback. And, you're, and you also know your boss has a chance to stop it. When you when their boss says, "Hey, just go do it," you're like, oh, "Well, I don't know," and and then people end up playing it about a half step back. They're not quite as bold. Number two, when we say "just go do it," the communication dries up because in, in organizations, one of the key people basically have been conditioned. The reason we communicate is to get permission, and so if I don't need to get permission, I don't communicate. It doesn't have to be that way, but there's just this linkage. So intent. What what we say is it invites feedback. Stop worrying about giving feedback. No one cares what you think if they haven't asked for it. I'm just being honest with you. Okay, maybe maybe that's 
So I, at least I know I don't care what, what you think. If, if I didn't ask for it, I don't really, to be honest, I don't really care. I want to care, I pretend to care, but I don't really care. <laughs> so what you want is an organization that invites feedback. You want an organization where people go around saying, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. What do you guys think? Or it could be like, hey, how was I in the meeting? You could, you could do things like that. So I play a game with myself. This worked but better before COVID-19 hit, but I would go and I would play a 30-day <clears throat> feedback game. Every time I went to a restaurant, I would go to Starbucks. Hey, how was I as a client? You know, and I'd ask them things like that. And because I just, you just want to kind of demystify. It's not a big deal. And I finally worked up to asking my wife, hey, how, how can I be a better husband? Which is a little scary, but it wasn't too shocking, so it was okay. Did she say, sit down, this is going to take a while? No, 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 no. She was, she was no. Sorry, I'm, I'm thinking about what it would be like in my house if we had that conversation. Don't start there. That's my, that's my tip. <laughs> work up to that. Yeah, work up to that. that. That's like varsity level stuff. Get the feedback from the people in Starbucks first. Starbucks first, yeah. <laughs> so were there types of things that the team or your team initially as officers and then the rest of the crew found more difficult than others to flip to from permission to proactivity? Yeah, it was, it was things that were two or three steps in the future. So basically the way they had been trained was if I ordered them to load a torpedo, I said, take this torpedo and load it into that tube at 12 o'clock tomorrow. They, they could exactly do that. They would break out the books they would get very focused, they would follow the procedure, and it would go okay. The problem was knowing what was happening and being able to project their minds forward and say, okay, now by Thursday, I need to have this kind of weapon, not that kind of weapon, because our mission is changing. And the reason they were not very good at that was because A, no one had asked them to do that, and B, we keep it to ourselves. It's not deliberate, but we have all the stuff going on in our head. It's, I, I'm the CEO or I'm the product owner or the captain of the submarine. And I have, I'm thinking, I'm just constant. I don't know if you're like me, but I'm just like all the time, constantly thinking, hey, what do we, okay, and then what's going to, and then how are we going to, and what's going to happen after that? And how are we going to deal with that? And so you walk out and you say, oh, then it clicks. You go, oh, we need torpedoes, not missiles. Tomorrow, we're going to have to backhaul the missiles, put it into and, and your guys are like, uh, okay. But they're not thinking like that. So what you have to do is provide, we call it clear, organizational clarity. It's like, what are we going to do? And you have to talk about it a lot. And it's aggravating. And then you say, okay, well, now that you know that this is our plan, how are you guys going to handle, handle that? And then they'll come back to you, ideally, and they're like, uh, I don't know. And then you say, okay, well, go think about it for 30 seconds and come back. Hey, we need to change from missiles to torpedoes. Okay, great. Did you have people who just were on the sub and frankly, they just wanted to be told what to do and they weren't prepared to play? Yeah, we did. We did. We had a couple. I would have fired them. I didn't have to because they quit. It's easy to get off a submarine. There are certain ways to get off. You can say, oh, I, I, I forgot to tell you I smoke pot. Okay, boom, you're out. Uh, you can say, oh, my back hurts. I got a back problem, which of course is hard to verify. Okay, you're out. So, but here's the deal. We, we're very careful about how we say things like that. We, we would say there are no people who like to be told what to do. There are people in situations that like to be told what to do. And the reason why we say that, or, or in environments, or in cultures, 
is because our behavior is always an interaction between my own innate characteristics, like my propensity to speak up in a meeting, and the culture and the, or the environment. It turns out the environment is under, generally we underappreciate the impact of the environment. And if we can change the environment a little bit, then all these people who yesterday weren't speaking up, tomorrow they're going to be speaking up because we made it safer for them to speak up. The idea that I go in and say, oh, well, you know, you need to, you need to speak up. I'm going to send you to an assertiveness training. That's, that's total nonsense. Like, cause, like if you want to fix somebody, fix yourself. So, okay, figure out how hard that is. Take some characteristic of your own and change it. Then you are, maybe you're in the right, but you can't change other people. But you, what you can do, you can't change their innate characteristics, but you can change their behaviors by putting the, creating an environment where the behaviors you want are easier for them to do. That's the key. That's what leaders do. Okay. And that sort of psychological safety, what, what did you do on the submarine to improve, improve the environment? So for, first of all, uh, so specifically talking about psychological safety, you have to model the behavior. You have to be vulnerable. And so I had, a, I had to learn a whole new language. If you watch, movie, if you watch, a, watch a typical movie with a leader or a boss and list, just listen very carefully to the language that they use, it's going to be prescriptive. It's going to be definite. It's going to be very certain. It's not going to have a lot of uncertainty and ambiguity and vulnerability. So I needed to say things like, hey, guys, here's the plan. But there's, I'm like 70% confident here. And I think there's a 30% chance the enemy is actually hiding over there. And just things like, hey, we're going to go do this. Here's what I'm really worried about. You have to model that, model the vulnerability first. If you can't do it, they're not going to do it. Here's a very simple thing for, for leaders. Up. Just start saying, just be able to say, I don't know. This is the very first test. And uh, we, we like to, our phrase is actuate new thinking. So if I, when I'm coaching people, I say, okay, your, your, your assignment for the week, every day, at least once say, you don't know. You don't know, let's find out. You don't know, let's look it up. You don't know, let's run an experiment, but you don't know. Because if you can't say you don't know, your team's not going to say you, they don't know. And if your team's not gonna, ever going to say that, you're never going to learn anything. It's so obvious once you like, oh, I know that. Why, why do I need to learn? Well, and so often businesses, you can see businesses fall into this trap because the, the CEO started the business and he had some domain expertise. And so he hired a lot of people who didn't know as much as he did. So they asked him and he told them what the answer was. And then the business fast forward to now we've got a couple of layers of management and nobody makes a decision without asking the boss. And the bosses, the CEOs will say to me, Don, why aren't, why won't people do things on their own? Why do people, my, you know, my email box is full of people asking me what to do. This, the, my door's full, you know, there's a queue of people asking me what to do. How do I stop? And you're saying, you just say, you just start saying, I don't know. Yeah. You just stop. You stop. I just stop telling them what to do. It, my, what I used to think was, oh, I have to keep telling them what to do because they're not telling me what they think we should do. And that's backwards. The reason they're not telling you what they think we should do is because you keep telling them what to do. So I would have, a, I would tell people, so it's not in a 
abrupt, but I would say, look, how about you guys tell me and I'm going to, I'm going to stop telling you guys what to do. So it, it, the problem was a lot of people, if like deep down, we like it. Let's be honest. What, telling people what to do? They, well, we like the relevance. All day long, people come by. I'm so important. I make all these decisions. People need me. And then I convince myself I'm doing such a good job. The problem is it's not good for them. And the journey of leadership is a journey to irrelevance. It has to be. Otherwise, you're just a doer. You're an individual contributor like everybody else. And what amazing leaders do is, is, they is they figure out like what their secret sauce is, what it is. So you've sold two companies. No one would buy your company if they're like, oh, Dom's, yeah, this, the whole company, there's all these doers and one guy does the thinking here, it's Dom. So you had to create, like if you're going to sell your company, if you're going to turn your phone off for two hours, <laughs> if you're going to go on a weekend, if you're going to retire, if you're going to go on holiday, you have to create a system that can live without you. So you have to, and, and you may need, may not be irrelevant immediately, but your relevance comes in creating the system whereby people are thinking and engaging and making great decisions. People often come and talk to me and say, Dom, you know, if, how do you measure the success with your clients? Is it how much money they make or is it that they do an exit? And I say, no, it's that the CEO spends one day a week running their business. What they do on the other four days a week is entirely then up to them. Like they could play, play more golf or often they're doing strategic work rather than execution work or they're doing innovation or they're doing other mergers and acquisitions or they're running another, started another business. Right. But that's really what people want is how do I help me get out the weeds? Help me get out of the weeds. This was, this was my experience. I, I was the guy. I was so much in the weeds. And in fact, the Navy, we would, we would, we would um, reward that behavior. Their uh, inspection teams would write things like, we saw the, CE, the CEOs, the commanding officers, the captain's fingerprints on everything. That would be a good comment because that means you were down in the weeds on all these little things getting involved. And here's what happens. When your team takes care of the, the weeds and they're coming to you with that, you're not having to run around and make sure that, oh, I got to tell them, then I got to go check them. You're, you start thinking of new things. And I would sit in the control room. One of the key jobs for a submarine, the, the, one of the only things you actually do is pattern recognition. You got intelligence that says this is going on. You're looking through the periscope and it looks like this. Uh, on sonar, they're reporting these different sounds. And it's conflicting information because the enemy deliberately tries to confuse you, right? <laughs> They're not like, oh, here we are, come get us. Like, no, that's not how it works. And so you're trying to put this all together. And I would be sitting in the control room, not basically not doing anything. The guys were like, what do you do? Oh, I just sit here. And I'd be looking at the different screens and the inputs, and I'd be listening to the reports. I had these headsets on, and everyone on the submarine, I could hear what was going on. I was kind of integrating the whole thing. And then finally it hit me, boom. I know what's going on here. And I would say, I think this is this, and I think this is actually this person, and they're trying to spoof us here. And, and then the guys would be like, that's right. That's amazing. How would you figure that out? And I was like, I don't know. I wasn't doing anything. I was just sitting here. And you have these like strategic, 
Now, I can't guarantee you'll have some brilliant insight, but I can guarantee you won't have a brilliant insight if you're running around micro, you know, changing Arial to Times New Roman on a PowerPoint slide. How did you measure the success? So you were commander of Santa Fe for how long? I was commander for three years. And you went from, do you go from bottom to top or what, what were your measures of success? I love that question. Thank you. Because the Navy measured my success one way, but I measured my success a different way. The Navy measured my success based on we, morale went way up. We, we, we re-enlisted every sailor, 33 out of 33 stayed in the Navy. It was three out of 33. We, that was the bottom. The average is about half. Uh, so morale went way up. People loved it. People wanted to come to the ship. And the performance went way, way up. We got the highest score in the history of the Navy for operating the submarine about a year later. People couldn't believe it. They didn't understand how it happened. And they called me, oh, you made great decisions. Like, no, actually, I didn't make any. It's just my team made this. What? That's crazy. But here's the thing. Uh, That felt good. And that was great. But 10 years later, 10 of the officers, a total of 10 of the officers on the submarine, and there's not that many. There's only like 15 altogether had made it, the second in commands made it to captain, the department heads made it second man and captain. 10 of them became submarine commanders. That was, that was one of the key ways I measured my success. You create more leaders. People have bigger, fuller lives because you help them. Here, here's the deal. They were thinking like captains, even when they were just junior officers, 25-year-old junior officers on the submarine. So it was natural for this Navy to that, oh, this person thinks like a commanding officer, so I'm going to promote them. And so they became, I think that's how it worked. Not, oh, we'll make you a captain and then teach you how to think like a captain. Yeah. So at the end of your three years, what, they put you in charge of training school? Yeah, actually, I was the head of the uh, inspector. Ah, okay. Well, you know what? I, I was, I was thinking, I was thinking it's, it was the Navy. So they probably just kicked you out. <laughs> I didn't realize you'd gone on to run the, run the inspector. No, later. later. <laughs> and so was that a big shock for the inspectorate? After I went to the Pentagon, that's another story. <laughs> well, so I was just thinking if, if the inspection regime before had been the captain's fingerprints were all over everything. Then, I mean, when, when you're now running the inspectorate, did that make it really difficult for the old school captains to pass an inspection with you? Yeah, yeah, it did. Because, so basically now I'm like the teacher, teacher and uh, parisher. I'm not actually running it, but I'm, I'm monitoring this. The, we're setting up the exercise and we're watching the submarines do their thing. I'd be on the submarine with a small team watching them. And we would have this drill where the captain would get sick or he would get injured. And I would say, hey, you're, you're sick. For the next 24 hours, you have to stay in your stateroom. And we would watch to see how the team would perform without the captain. And if things went south, that would be evidence that the captain was a one-man show and that it's a fragile, fragile, fragile team. If the cap, you don't need to get sick. You just need to have an off day, and you make, make a bad decision, and everyone's going to follow you. It doesn't matter. You say, "Oh, everybody, speak up if you don't like it." It doesn't matter. You're the captain. You're the CEO. You founded the company. Someone's going to speak up. No, 
Maybe. But if you're like, well, what do you guys think? And you stay quiet, then you're going to really hear some interesting stuff. Yeah. So um, what other things, uh, because I don't know, and this is what I intend to do, very, very simple, actionable things to go and start practicing. 30-day feedback. 30-day feedback. So yeah, 30-day me- feedback, game. Go every time you interact. Yeah, once a day, start simple. Hey, how was I as a customer? How was I? I'd ask that when I used to fly a lot, I always asked the flight attendants. And she goes, I hope you had a good flight today. I was like, hi, hey, how was I as a... <laughs> Uh, I thought I was a little loony, but um, yeah, work up to bigger things and start asking your team, hey, how, how was I in the meeting? How, how, how helpful? And, and because what will happen is you're going you're gonna to learn that some questions are better than others for eliciting feedback. In fact, how was I at blah is not that great of a question. It's, it's too generic. Uh, one other thing is practice giving up control in your personal life because that will allow you to understand the feeling of giving up control at work. So take something that really matters to you. And again, pre-COVID, for me, it was ordering at a restaurant. I was like, I'll have this with that sauce. And what I try and do now is get the server to choose for me. I said, I don't even want to know what it is until you put it in front of me. You're going to make the decision on this one. And, and the reason <laughs> it's really... <laughs> right. And try it, try it at McDonald's. But and the reason it's really powerful is because you will you will feel it does everything that you want it, that you have to do at work, but it's of no consequence. You will feel the anxiety of not knowing what you're going to get. You will also need to read the other person, and again, it's about safety. You have to make it safe for them to come and make a decision for you. They're not going to want to. You're also changing the you're changing the script because what they expect, what they think you mean is, oh well. Chicken or fish. Yeah, I, I recommend chicken or fish. What do you want? In other words, you're going to make the final decision. You say, no, 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 no. You choose. Whatever you want. It's fine. And uh, I've already given you guys a five. The only way you're not going to get a five-star review is if you don't make this decision. <laughs> and you will learn all the tricks. They're not tricks, but the ways to make it safe for somebody else because you're going to have to make it safe for this person. And then you'll see what happens. And I, we always, when we start with executive teams, this is the first thing we have them do. And then they come back and we talk, well, so what was your experience? And there's amazing stories. Like they paid more attention. One, one team came back and said they were paying more attention to how they poured the water to our table because we let them just run it. And, and they'll say, you're going to have the most amazing meal ever. And then you get this person on the other side. It's like, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's kind of like, I'm not up for that. Just tell me what, and you'll have to figure that out. You'll have to narrow the boundary. Uh, I think I, that when you were talking, when you started explaining that example, I was thinking, I've done that before. I've let somebody else order and I've just said, I'll have what they're having. But that's not the same thing at all. Making the server make the choice. As you were saying, because they're going to then be uncomfortable doing that and you've got to work out how to make them comfortable and get them still to make the decision. Right. Sometimes when we have like a group, we'll let's say, okay, the person on the right will order for, like you order for the person next to you kind of a thing. But when you're, if you're locked at home, then do pick something like what movie are you going to watch or what are you going to have for dinner or how are you going to stack the dishwasher or 
how are you going to do the laundry? Like you have to give up control of something and give it up to a different, to a person who, if you're always a person who has to sit in the driver's seat, give it up. I know you guys are all control freaks out there. So you got to give it up and then you'll know what it feels like. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Uh, David, if you thought about where you are now in your life and you look back, is there something that you think, I know that now, I wish I'd known that earlier? Yeah, it's it's not so much I didn't know it. I guess I didn't. Like your life, improving your life, it comes from improving the lives of others. And sometimes I hear people use this term servant leadership, which to me, it, it provokes a certain thinking, which is helpful. But it's not about sacrificing yourself. You will actually be the bigger beneficiary. It's the person who makes the, the lives of the most number of other people better in the biggest way will feel a great sense of satisfaction. And they'll probably make a huge amount of money. But they'll feel the great sense of satisfaction. At the end of the day, I have a we, one of our exercises is, okay, you just got an email from God and it said, Today at midnight tonight, you're you're gonna die. You got the rest of the day to do to think about and do whatever you want. Like, what are you gonna think about? What's your contribution? Are you gonna be? Are you gonna go with calm and quiet because you know you did your best, and that people in the world are better off because of you? Or, or how like how are we gonna react to that? So, and and I heard it. But I don't know. I felt for a long time. I mean, it was hard because I kept getting rewarded for being like the smart guy in the room and telling everyone what to do. And I convinced myself, oh, I'm making it better for them. I'm I'm ordering them all around. Look how good it is for them. We Like we went up 0.2 points on a whatever score. Yeah. Whereas I, I, just going back to your restaurant example, when you said, you know, that they noticed that the server was pouring the water more diligently on their table after being asked to place the order on their behalf. Now, all of a sudden, you know, some menial task is now imbued with all sorts of ownership. Yeah, you can imagine their faces literally light up. They literally, you, they walk faster. You can just see them. You could see it physically manifested. And the same thing happens with the team. Fantastic. Um, David, you've, uh, you've read a few books here where we're chatting away on video and you've got, you've got several hundred on the shelves behind you. If you were just to pick a few of those, what, uh, what do you think people, people should read? What's your, I love reading. It's like for the cost of a couple of cups of coffee, you get, I mean, I know what goes in. <laughs> it's the cheapest form of, uh, of learning. It's so good. I love history books. I'm a huge fan. And it turns out like a lot of what we do is corporate leaders is history. Something happened. I got to figure out well, what actually happened and what caused it. Well, that's history. I, I love reading these longer term books that talk about how, like, how did we become humans? For example, as book on here, Europe before Rome and then Sapiens by Harari or Guns, Germs, and Steel. Guns, Germs, and Steel is, that's a fantastic book. It's a fantastic book. Yeah, it's a fantastic book. And, and especially any book that connects to language. 
because I think we are wired in certain ways that that 50,000 years of of how we lived has resulted in a certain kind of wiring, which is mostly helpful, but every once in a while, not. And so understanding like how humans are wired, start with yourself. Like, why did I do that? Why did I decide? Why did I not do this other thing? Fantastic. David, that's been Brilliant. I've really enjoyed chatting to you today. Thank you for being my guest. Cheers and thanks for everyone, all your listeners and what you guys do to make the world a better place. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As a token of your appreciation, it'd be fantastic if you could go wherever you're listening and leave me a review. Those reviews really help other people find this podcast. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast, and there you'll find some fantastic show notes, additional reading and links relating to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of my subjectively not crap newsletter. The simplest thing to do on the website is to sign up and I'll update you each week on the most interesting articles that I've read on all things relating to scaling up high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. For social, you can find me on Twitter, Dom Monkhouse, and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse, although LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me, share your questions and comments, and, and perhaps even recommend a guest for a future edition of the Melting Pot podcast. Thanks for listening.